Reverend Noemi's message to us this month got me thinking about our own customs of death and dying and our culture's attitude towards death. Ministry is a profession where you deal with death on a regular basis, if not all the time. If not being present for a death, you're frequently there in the immediate aftermath for the shock, the grief, the loss. By far, the most difficult event in my ministry so far has been death. The most difficult of these being a number of years ago when I was in Texas, a young adult couple, 20-somethings, had their first baby. The baby was born while I was en route in the air flying back to Massachusetts to attend my brother's wedding. I got the news and messages when I landed. Less than 24 hours later, just as the reception was about to begin, I got a phone call. The baby had died. 22 hours old. And the way you're hearing this right now and how you're feeling hearing it, yeah, that's where I was. What do you do? What do you say? Especially to a woman who had already had miscarriages. Sometimes there are no words. And all we can do is be present. Our readings this morning outline our two broad cultural attitudes about death. Rage against the dying of the light. And Elizabeth Kubler-Roth, who studied death and dying, reminding us that Whatever our culture has built it up to be, this is a natural part of the process of life and death. I began my ministerial education on dealing with death and dying actually as a hospice chaplain, where I would visit with patients and their families facing terminal illness. As people found out I was doing this, people would always ask me the same question. It must be depressing, right? Truth was, it wasn't. Um, I thought it was going to be depressing, too, when I started. I had no idea. What I found was, however, that in most cases, what I was witness to was the love each family and each person seems to find when there's no time left for anything else. And that started to lessen, for me, the fear and uncertainty. Because I was continually surrounded by people who, at journey's end, or at the journey's end of a loved one, worked as best they could to find all the love that was there. And in many cases, in fact, the great majority of cases, there was a lot of love there. I wonder if one of the reasons our culture sometimes has such a hard time with death is that we're not very good with lots of negative things in our culture. We don't do well with grief. We're supposed to hide it. All our deep sadnesses are personal. 
And that's a big change in human culture because for much of human culture, those kinds of deep losses and griefs were very public. In the Old Testament, we read of commandments to rip your garments and wail. And now we try to hide tears, apologize for having a breakdown of emotion. Because God forbid our showing that kind of emotion might make anyone else uncomfortable. I find sometimes our customs about death a little puzzling. And maybe it's because I've attended so many of these over the years, it started to occur to me that in our culture when someone dies, one of the things we do is we put makeup on them and we dress them up in their finest clothes and do our utmost best to make them look like they are not dead. And this has not been a cultural norm for humanity for most of our run. In fact, there are many cultures still today, Asian cultures, African cultures, where a dead body is not dressed up, it is a dead body. And the grief is public. There is wailing and ululating and public displays of sobbing and mourning that are loud. Our culture would find them incredibly boisterous in a sad way. Perhaps our culture around death got formed a lot by our religious look at death. And we go back to our Transylvanian roots. And when Unitarianism rose up in Transylvania for the first powerful time, it was a decree to let people believe as they would like, to start bringing in the Renaissance gift of reason and human concern. And compared to death being framed as a binary either-or, dark or light, eternal punishment of hell and damnation, or maybe for a very select few, eternal bliss, no wonder we created such a fear of death. Because when we do that, we need to rage against the dying of the light. Because that binary choice or process or judgment is not framed as a natural part of a cycle of life. There is much said about our culture that we have a culture of death. Our culture is violent. We value strength and power. No wonder we see death, the final loss, the final loss of control, the final giving up as weakness, something to be ultimately avoided at all costs. The Buddhists teach us, perhaps to take Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's perspective, 
we need to remind ourselves of our cycle and the things we really don't have control over. The Buddha's five remembrances say, I am of the nature to grow old. There is nothing I can do to avoid growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way I can escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. Everything and everyone I love are of the nature to change. My actions are my only true possessions. They are the ground on which I stand. seems stark. And there are monasteries where this is recited every morning. But it's also an acceptance of the normalizing of the human condition of which we're all a part. Our culture gets into many arguments that in many ways revolve around death it becomes a massively ethical question for us. Abortion, capital punishment, war, and as we're reminded so much of the last week or so, rape, sexual assault, objectification. Our ethical thinking around death sometimes gets separated into all these little categories in which we deal with death. And sometimes I think it stops us from taking a step back and saying, how does the culture we've inherited about death and dying frame the way we ethically and morally respond to so many of these questions? And is there any way to be consistent Catholic pacifist Eileen Egan said that what we should search for in the face of all these life and death questions is what she called a seamless garment. And it makes sense. Do we value life? And do we understand death in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's way as part of the cycle of life? Because if we truly value life, we make sure life is cared for and nurtured and that all those of us who live, no matter the color of their skin or their gender or their religion or their national origin, are respected and valued as much as everyone else. That we don't deal out death as punishment. One of the big issues our culture now faces is death with dignity. How can people who are very terminally ill and in pain choose to die? And do they have the right to do so? The state of Oregon says yes. And legislation is similarly pending in 24 state legislatures. The Colorado, uh, the Oregon law was framed by Unitarian Universalists. and they saw it through to their completion. So that now in, in uh, Oregon, you can 
get a prescription to end your life if you are terminally ill with six months left to live? It's a fascinating question. I don't think there are easy answers to it. Unitarian Universalists got into this debate on euthanasia before. In the early 20th century, Reverend Charles Parter, one of our leading humanist ministers, started the American Euthanasia Society for the right to die in such circumstances. But many of the folks involved with that were also supporters of eugenics, selective breeding to weed out the weaker genetic traits in human beings, you know, such as being black or Jewish. And because eugenics was pursued so thoroughly by Nazi Germany, anything related to it kind of fell off after that. And I think that may be something we have to watch as, as the Death with Dignity movement grows, is what are our checks and balances against who to say when life is terminal or ready to end, or which life is inferior. Mexican lives, Muslim lives, immigrant lives, disabled lives, refugee lives, women's lives. Our culture of death has even moved into the way we communicate with each other. And we see this as prevalent in the norm now, that if we have disagreements with each other, we communicate to the, to the other side that you are not only wrong, but you are evil. And when someone is evil, it is very easy to dehumanize them. And dehumanization is an insidious process that sometimes you don't even notice is happening. To dehumanize is to make someone less than human. And we do this by category and name. If you are not a human being, but a Mexican, if you're not a human being, but a Muslim, if you're not a human being, but a Jew, if you are not a human being, but black, if you're not human being, but a woman, how much easier it is to speak ill to you, act horrendously towards you, be violent towards you, even rape you and kill you. Because after all, you are not human. In many ways, our culture holds up death as a model. And perhaps it's just because we're so scared of it and we've forgotten to make it a natural part of a cycle of life. But maybe the greatest tool we have in our toolkit to reshape our attitude and culture around death is to do something very simple and very powerful, to live our lives well, which I think we all underestimate as an incredibly powerful tool for supporting life 
Mary Oliver writes in her poem, When Death Comes, when it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I have done a lot of funerals and memorial services in this past year. And Mary Oliver is right on target. The parade of funerals which I attended and officiated at began about a year ago with my father's and continue right through the end of the summer. And all of these funerals and memorial services, from those of people of great worldly achievement to no worldly achievement whatsoever, all these services told tales of people who did much more than just visit this world. Through all these services, I was especially struck by the remembering of lives well-lived, how these lives were varied and multifaceted, all of them, and how the remembrances at these services were not of work done and degrees awarded and recognitions of achievement, but of places visited, homes inhabited, hobbies enjoyed, conversations, kindnesses, personal quirks, and expressions of love. And ultimately, that's the only thing that defeats and outlasts death. It's the only weapon to combat the dehumanizing, death-dealing parts of our culture. And death itself. My friend Mel King, well-known African-American civil rights activist in Boston, fondly used to say all the time, love is the question and the answer. Love? Love. Stronger than death. And so may it be.